6 and Mark 6, though, will be our primary locations for today's lesson, The Lord Multiplies a Lad's Lunch. This is the only miracle that we have recorded in all four Gospels. So what does that tell you? It must be important. It's the only one that is recorded in all four Gospels other than, of course, the Lord's resurrection. All right, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we love you. We lift up your name. We hallow your name. We thank you that you are the great creator, redeemer God of the universe who revealed yourself to us, not only by the written word, but by the living word, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would pray, Lord, that we would exalt him and lift him up today and that he and he alone would get the glory for being such an awesome God, the bread of life, the only one who satisfies. And we will give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So because this is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels, we know it must be very important. So guess what? This is probably going to be a little bit lengthy of a lesson, but then you all say, so what else is new? (laughs) This is our 19th recorded miracle in the Lord's life. Very briefly, we're going to be looking at two parts in our outline. We're going to be looking at Jesus feeding the multitude and Jesus fleeing from the multitude. I want to read as I begin, this is the second creative miracle in the Lord's life. It's one of six miracles, this is just trivial information, but it is one of six miracles that the Lord performed which has to do with food. And I got to thinking about that's interesting. Uh, Six miracles, man is, his number is six, right? (laughs) And what does man love more than anything? Besides money, food. But it is the second creative miracle. What was the first creative miracle that he performed? Right, when he turned water into wine. And uh, I wanted to read something. I think this was from Arthur Pink's book. He says, Of all the wonderful works which our Savior did, none was quite so public as this, the feeding of the 5,000, and none other was performed before so many witnesses. In healing the sick and in raising the dead, something was amended or restored which already existed. But here was an absolute creation. You know, he created without seeds, without uh, planting and growing and watering and harvesting and crushing and making into barley cakes, he created bread. And same thing without fish eggs, he created fish. So that's why this is called a creative miracle. Here was an absolute creation. Only one other miracle in any wise resembles it, his first miracle, when he made wine out of water. These two miracles belong to a class by themselves, and it is surely significant that the one reminds us of his precious blood, you know, the wine, while the other points to his holy body broken for us. Before he distributed the bread, he broke the bread. It's a picture of him. And here is, we believe, the chief reason why this miracle is mentioned by all of the four evangelists or the gospel writers. It foreshadowed the gift of Christ himself. All right, so we're going to be looking first of all at Jesus feeding the multitude. And then in verses 14 and 15 of John chapter 6, he's the only one, by the way, of the four gospels who mentions this last bit. The crowd is so impressed with his miracle that they want to crown him king but they have in mind the wrong type of king. Therefore, he flees from the multitude, and that's what we'll look at in the second division of this outline. Now, our primary text is going to be John chapter 6. And we have not, I don't know if you realize this or not, but we have not been in the Gospel of John for a long, long time. We have not been in the Gospel of John this whole year. We have not been in the Gospel of John in our whole Life of Christ 3 book. We were not even in the Gospel of John in our whole Life of Christ 2 book, which was on the Sermon on the Mount. So we have not been in John's Gospel since the Life of Christ 1 volume, which was, what, two years ago. The last time we were in John, we studied about uh, the Lord's miraculous healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. And following that, if you look at John chapter 5, which is the chapter preceding where we are today, 
following the miracle of the healing of that man who'd been an impotent a cripple for 38 years was the great sermon on the judgment and resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, in the very next chapter of John, chapter 6, he writes about the feeding of the 5,000, which occurred, he says in verse 4, at the time of the Feast of the Jews, which was at the time of the Passover. About, so about six months in the Lord's life have passed since John chapter 5. And this is, again, another advantage that we have in studying his life chronologically. He just refers to the Lord's entire Galilean ministry as after these things. Look at John chapter 6, verse 1. After these things. After these things includes his entire Galilean ministry, which was recorded for us, basically, from Matthew chapter 5 until Matthew chapter 14. So if we did on, were only studying the book of John, we would have missed the entire Sermon on the Mount. We would have missed the miracle of the healing of the centurion's servant. We would have missed the raising of the dead widow's son at Nain, as well as the raising of Jairus's 12-year-old daughter. We would have missed the Lord's teaching on the mystery kingdom. Remember the mystery kingdom parables in Matthew 13? We would have missed the blasphemous accusation of the Lord when the religious ruler said he did his miracles in the power of Beelzebub, and then we would have missed his teaching on the unpardonable sin. We would have missed the miracle of the calming of the storm and the healing of the uh, Gergesene demoniac. We would have missed the Lord's last return, his second return to Nazareth, where they again rejected him. And we would have missed his commissioning sermon, his ordination sermon to his 12 men as he sent them out on their first mission venture without him. All of these things were skipped over by John. Why? Well, because John, for one thing, John was inspired to write, um, he was inspired to write on the Judean ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ meaning when Jesus spent his time down in Judah, the southern province of Israel. The, the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, focused more on the Galilean ministry of Jesus. Another reason would be that John was the last to write his gospel account. Yes, and he was more theological. But he was the last to write, so these other men he knew had already written about these other things. So then ra rather than writing what the others had covered, he was inspired by God the Holy Spirit to, to uh, write with sp seven specific miracles in mind. In John's Gospel, we read about seven specific miracles which pointed to or demonstrated the deity of Jesus Christ. That's not to say the other miracles didn't point to his deity, but he was inspired to write on just seven. Seven is, of course, the number of perfection. All right, so with that introduction, let's read the text. First of all, I'm going to read John 6, verses 1 to 13, and then we'll look over at Mark 6, verses 30 to 44. John 6, starting at verse 1. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Same in the one in the same sea. They had four names for that sea, which was really a lake. It is still existing. It's a lake, but they call it a sea in the Bible. Verse 2. And a great multitude followed him because they, what? Saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. Remember that term, a feast of the Jews, because they had turned it into their feast and not the feast God had intended for it. Verse 5, When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him or to test him. For he, Jesus himself, knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred pennyworth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. 
much grass. Remember that. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. I'm not going to read Matthew's account, but in Matthew 14:21, it tells us that the men were 5,000 besides the women and children. So there were women and children. And so the crowd was probably something more like 15 to 20,000 people that day. Verse 11, and Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks and in all three of the synoptic gospels, it is added that he not only gave thanks, but he broke the bread. And that is important to read the fact that he broke the bread because that is a picture of him being broken for us. He is the bread of life who was broken on the cross for us. And there's another reason it's important that I hope we get to in our lesson this morning. All right, so he gave thanks, broke the bread, and he distributed to the disciples and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. That means as much as they could eat. Verse 12, when they were filled, he said unto his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. All right, I'm going to stop right there and we'll go back to verses 14 and 15 in the second part of our lesson. But if you would go over to the book of Mark, let's read Mark 6, verses 30 to 44. Mark 6, just John 6 and Mark 6. It says, And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus. That is speaking about the apostles coming back from their first mission venture without him. When they had gone out in pairs, two by two, all throughout Israel to the lost sheep of, of um, the house of Israel, now they must have had a rendezvous day and time and place, which was Capernaum. So they, they came back and met with Jesus. That's what verse 30 is talking about there. And they told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. So many people following them. They didn't even have time to take a lunch break. Verse 32, And they departed into a desert place by ship privately. At least they tried to slip away in a ship privately but we're told and the people saw them departing and many knew him they knew jesus they recognized him and ran afoot thither out of all cities and outwent them and came together unto him what they did is they ran around the lake jesus and his men got in a boat and crossed over on the boat to the other side of the lake the sea which was over near Bethsaida on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. But these people, when they saw Jesus and his men slipping away from them, they just grabbed their kids and ran. They didn't want him getting away. They ran around the lake over and beat him to the area of Bethsaida, which was a nine-mile walk or run. They, that's amazing, nine miles. Some of those women carrying children, and it's incredible. All right, verse 34. And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people and was moved with compassion toward them because they were as sheep not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him and said, This is a desert place, and now the time is far past. Send them away that they may go into the country round about and into the villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. He answered them, and he answered and said unto them, Give ye them to eat. That must have shocked them. You know, he gives them a command to feed them, and, and they don't have anything to feed them with, so that must have shocked them. And they said unto him, Shall we go and buy two hundred penny worth of bread and give them to eat? He saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? Go and see. And who was the one who went and saw? Andrew. And when they knew how many they had, they said, Five and two fishes. And he commanded them to make all sit down by companies upon what? The green grass. Remember, John said there was much grass. Here we learn that there is green grass. And he made them to lieth down. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. The word for sit here is really lay down. You know how they used to eat? Reclining. Isn't that neat? 
And they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. Now, to me, that right there is a miracle. If you can get fifteen to 20,000 people to sit down orderly in ranks, when the, in the Greek word there is garden plots. Can you picture this? Somebody told me yesterday that the various tribes would wear different colored clothes. So if they were on this green, uh, plush, much grass, green hillside, which was probably like an, uh, a natural amphitheater, and they're sitting in ranks of 50s and 100s with all their colorful clothes, it would look like a garden out there. But that had to have been a miracle. How did they organize them like that without a microphone or a megaphone? <laughs> I don't know. To me, that's part of the miracle. All right, verse 41. I had a hard time just getting five people to sit down to dinner, didn't you? <laughs> and when he had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed and what? Break the loaves. And gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fishes divided he among them all. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments and of the fishes. And they that did eat of the loaves were about five thousand men. But we know it also included women and children. When John the Baptist's disciples buried his body and then reported to Jesus what had been done, we read that in Matthew 14:12 last week, he resolved in his mind that he would leave the area of Capernaum. But before he left, Mark 6.30 tells us that it was right at that same time that, uh, that his apostles returned from their mission venture. And they told him all things, both what they had done. I'm sure it was an exciting time. It was an exciting reunion for all of them to share with each other. Oh, I got to cleanse a leper. Oh, that's nothing. I got to, uh, to raise a dead person. Now, we don't ever have any record of them doing that. I wonder if any of them really did raise a dead person. He gave them the power, but I wonder if they had the faith <laughs> to try that and do it. But they must have also just shared and, and wanted to hear what each of the other pair of men had to say about their, their mission venture, what they had taught, all the different kinds of people. They probably shared about who had listened to their message and those who had not listened to their message, and they would have said to the Lord, you were right, some people, we had to shake the dust off of our feet and just leave them and go on to greener pastures, speaking of green pastures. And they would have said, Lord, you're absolutely right. The Lord, the God did protect us. He did provide for us, even though we didn't have a script with food in it. Every night when we were hungry, somebody would invite us to their home and they would feed us. Remember in Luke 22:35, the Lord said, remember that first mission venture you guys took? Did you lack for anything? And they said, no, nothing, Lord. We had it all. But you, you were true to your word. God provided and God protected and God prospered their time. So we know that reunion would have been a time of great rejoicing. It would have also been a time of some sadness because maybe for the first time the disciples heard about John the Baptist. Jesus, If they hadn't heard already from Jesus, from somebody else, they would have heard uh, from the Lord that John the Baptist had been beheaded. And then he said to them, after their great time of sharing, he said to them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. That's Mark 6.31. And the scripture goes on to tell us that there were so many people following them that they had no leisure, not even time to stop and take a lunch break. They didn't even have time to eat. And I got to thinking about why there would be so many people following them. One reason is now instead of just having Jesus out there performing miracles and, and uh, teaching great, with great divine wisdom, they also had, the people had six pairs of men who were able to perform all these fantastic miracles. So don't you think some of the people were even following Peter and, and um, Andrew and James and John? And another reason the crowd was so big was because it was the time of the Passover. So the crowds were swelled with Passover pilgrims coming from other parts of the, of the world. And uh, they, they had heard about Jesus. And when they heard he was in Capernaum, you know, there was even more women, children, husbands, families. And so this was one reason why commentaries even say the crowd could have been as big as 25,000 people. But we're being conservative because I'm giving each of the 5,000 men one wife and one child. So we're just being conservative to say 15,000. So anyway, also Jesus knew that he said, when he says, I'm going to call you apart to a desert place, 
he knew not only that his men needed rest and refreshment, he did too. Because while they had been gone, um, I think it's in Matthew 11:1, 1, he had also been on a preaching and teaching tour. So he wasn't just sitting around while they went out. He was busy too. He needed a rest. They needed a rest. But he also knew that it was wise to leave the area at this point in time over which Herod Antipas reigned. They're in Galilee. Herod Antipas is the ruler of Galilee. And what is he afraid of? Who is he afraid of right now? He's afraid of Jesus because he thinks that he's John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. So it would be wise for Jesus to get out of the area for a while. Now, some people think Jesus was running in from fear, but that is ridiculous because after Jesus feeds the 5,000 or the 15,000 people, he puts his disciples in a boat and sends them right back into Herod Antipas' territory, right back to Capernaum. He doesn't take the boat trip. He walks across the water. <laughs> but he goes right back to Capernaum. So he, there's no way he was afraid of Herod Antipas. He wouldn't have been afraid of him to call him a, an old fox. That doesn't show fear. All right, so he, they did leave Capernaum, and they tried to get away secretly, privately, quietly, maybe you know, slipped down to the lake and got into a boat and they crossed over the sea. But, um, and they went over to a city called Bethsaida, which is literally the house of fishing. And that was on the eastern border of Galilee. If you have a map in the back of your books, you might want to look at the sea so you get a picture of what I'm talking about, how they crossed over from Capernaum to Bethsaida. You'll see it over there on the east side. That's the area from which Philip came. Philip was from Bethsaida. That makes sense because he asked Philip, where they can get bread. Philip was from that area. All right, and it was just within the territory that was ruled not by Herod Antipas, but it was ruled by his brother Philip. It was in the province called Trachonitis. So see, now they're outside of Herod Antipas's jurisdiction. Philip was the brother whose wife Herod Antipas had stolen. But he was by far the less harmful of any of the, of the Herods. And this also was a much less populated side of the sea. Not as many towns and villages and cities over there on that side of the sea. Jesus knew that it was not only wise to avoid Herodonipas for a while, but he also knew that his men absolutely needed to take a rest. They needed to renew their bodies as well as their spirit. You know, Scripture teaches us the value of periodic rest for our bodies and, our, and to renew our, our spirits and, our, and, you know, our souls. That's why revivals are so good, and that's why retreats, Christian retreats, are so good. We all need to occasionally come apart from our labors for the Lord and to get alone with God so that we can be revived and refreshed to serve him again with more oomph and zeal. Vance Havner, who was a North Carolinian preacher, once said, if you don't come apart, you will come apart. <laughs> and I thought how every time I teach a lesson, the Lord speaks to me because we can get so busy serving the Lord and doing this and doing that that sometimes he just has to put us flat on our back <laughs> to give us that period of rest that we won't take ourselves. And that's exactly what he did with me this week. I couldn't even do anything. It was very hard for me to study for the lesson. I'd have my books up like this because I was flat on my back. It was the only position I could be comfortable in. Sitting is the worst. So <laughs> it's amazing how he always does this. I was really scared last week when we talked about John's beheading. <laughs> to constantly be followed by masses of people you know had to be hard on the Lord in his, his humanity. He had a very rigorous schedule of preaching and teaching and, and healing. He had to encounter also the opposition of his enemies and the misunderstandings and the misconceptions of, the, of even of his own family and of many in the multitudes that followed him, as well as the wavering immaturity of his own disciples. And then John's death, the news of John's death. You know, all of that in his humanity, made him very exhausted and tired. And this would be a drain on his energy as far as his humanity is concerned. Not his deity, but his humanity. He seldom had time alone to himself. So he made time. He had to make time to get away to the mountains. A person who never visits the quiet places cannot expect to be God's representative to the masses. 
it is so important that we have our quiet time alone with the Lord or we have nothing really to give to, to others. So they got away from the crowds to a haven in the mountains there on the eastern side of the, of the Sea of Galilee. And that area today is known as the Golan Heights. Now you have heard about the Golan Heights, I know, in the news, in the news of the world today. Some people saw them slipping. We know that they, th- even though they were trying to get away privately, some people saw them slipping into the boat. We read that in Mark 6:33, and word soon spread. Jesus and his men are trying to get away. Word spread like wildfire. And Matthew 14:13 says, when the multitudes heard thereof, they followed him on foot from the cities. As a matter of fact, Mark's account tells us that when the people saw them going, as I've already mentioned, they ran around the lake, and they actually beat him there. And the lake was, is uh, 13 miles long and 8 miles across, and their little trip was kind of an arch of 9 miles. And that might account for why they didn't, all have, they didn't have food with them. Jesus is getting away. Quick, grab your kids and let's run. We don't, you know, grab your sick people and let's go. So they didn't have, they didn't have time to pack a lunch. One little boy's mother was wise. She packed him a lunch. But the rest, or even if they did have little scripts, food bags, they might have eaten them earlier in the day, like around lunchtime or right after they got there. Nine-mile trip, they're hungry. Maybe they ate the little bit they had, but by dinner time, by evening, they didn't have anything left. So that makes sense. All right, now this might sound great at first, you know, because it, all these people were uh, chasing after Jesus. They were, it sounds like they were accepting him and, and wanting to be with him. Well, they were wanting to be with him, but the real motive of most of the people is given to us in John 6, 2. What does it say? And a great multitude followed him. Why? Because they loved his person. They knew he was the son of God. They knew he was the Messiah. They, want, they loved his teaching. They wanted to hear him teach. Is that why they followed him? No, they followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. Unfortunately, the real reason for his popularity came from selfish motives. The people were coming to be healed, or they were coming to see him perform amazing miracles. They were more interested in physical things than they were in spiritual things. The vast majority were thrill-seekers. And their perspective was self-centered. They enjoyed the unusual entertainment that he provided. They didn't have televisions. They didn't have DVDs. They didn't have whatever else people um, entertain themselves with today. So this was great. You know, Jesus gave them great conversation to talk about when they went back to their dull villages and their boring daily lives. And they could say, I saw Jesus do such and such. And they would be... The, the you know popular in their own village because they had actually seen Jesus and they could tell a great story about what he did. His miracles always drew many after him, but very few to him. And many of them were no doubt seeing great promise in Jesus as their political Messiah, who they hoped would use his tremendous powers. Nobody denied his powers. Nobody. I mean, this miracle was witnessed by some maybe 15,000, 20,000 people. Nobody ever denied that he did not perform this miracle, except the liberals today. But uh, they were hoping that he would use his powers to lead them in an overthrow of, their, of the Herods. They hated the Herod dynasty, didn't they? Those Herods had no business sitting on Jewish thrones because they weren't even Jewish. They were Idumean. And Herod Antipas was half Samaritan. And they wanted not only to overthrow the Herods, but Rome as well. Very few in the crowds came to Jesus for spiritual deliverance. Very few had any desire to submit to him as the Lord of their hearts and their lives. Very few understood his deity. Now, although Jesus was seeing a much needed, was seeking a much needed time of rest alone with his men, yet it says, as he looked out and saw the sight of the thronging crowds, he again had what? compassion he again had compassion on them he saw them as scattered sheep without a caring shepherd so his compassionate concern prevailed over his quest his own quest for solitude he always put other people first before his own needs now changing subjects here but there are three passovers which are mentioned in john's gospel and that's how bible students 
and historians know that his Jesus' ministry was three and a half years long because he was in ministry six months before the first Passover. What did he do at the first Passover? Who remembers? He went into Jerusalem and straight to the temple, and he cleansed it. Yeah, that was the first temple, the first, um, the first Passover when he cleansed the temple. This now, if you want to make a record of it, in John 6, 4, is the second Passover in the Lord's life his earthly ministry life. The third Passover would be one year from the point where we are. So how much time is left in the Lord's ministry? One year. Because it would be one year from this time of feeding the 5,000 that he himself would be the Passover lamb. That third Passover, he was the Passover lamb whose blood would save all those who applied it to the door of their own hearts. So although he greatly needed some rest, yet Jesus could not look upon these people, this multitude, without feeling tender tenderness for them. Even if their motives for following him were, were unworthy, he still had compassion on them, as, the faith, as a faithful shepherd has for his flock. So it says in Mark 6.34 that he began teaching them many things. We're told over in Luke 9.11, he taught them about the kingdom the kingdom of heaven. He taught them many things. And notice, this is just a, a footnote here, but he, he taught them before he fed them. He taught them before he fed them. So what when we, when we have our Bible time in here, before you have your luncheons, we're very biblical. <laughs> we're doing it the right way. We're doing it in the right order. Now, what do you think would happen if we fed you before we taught you? I know what would happen. Some of you are already having a hard time staying awake. <laughs> but you'd really have a hard time. And some of you might leave. Oh, I got what I wanted. <laughs> I got that chocolate dessert. But I'm not talking about you guys. The world would do that. And sometimes we do gimmicks with church things, don't we? We, feed, we, we offer food to get the people in before we teach them. If we're going to do that, we should be biblical. We should teach them first. Because many people, if they're of the world, and aren't, they're not interested in the gospel. They'll eat and leave. They'll take the freebies and go. Anyway, that, that was free. And in addition to teaching them, Mark, uh, Matthew and Luke tell us that he healed their sick. He healed everyone who was brought to him who was sick. And the crowd, including not only 5,000 men, but all these women and children, they stayed and listened all day long to him. Now, maybe a lot of them didn't. Maybe some of them, after they got what they wanted, maybe after they, they got, uh, not fed, but after they got healed, left. I don't know. But by the end of the day, there were still many, many people there, perhaps 15,000. Luke tells us that the day began to wear away. And Mark says the day was now far spent, whereas Matthew says when it was evening, what happened? Well... When the, it was about 45 minutes from sunset. They know that by the words, the Greek words that were used, about 45 minutes till the sun was down. And the disciples were perceiving that they had a serious problem here. They looked out on a great mass of people, and they saw children beginning to whine and cry and tell their mommies they were hungry. They saw uh, some women uh, maybe beginning to faint from hunger. After all, if they ran nine miles with kids... Wouldn't you be ready to faint from hunger and weariness? I sure would. And he heard, they probably heard their own stomachs growling. Because remember, they had not leisure themselves to even eat. So they hadn't eaten anything. And so they said to Jesus, essentially, we have a problem. There were thousands of people before them, and they were in a desert place. Now, don't get the picture of a desert with sand and a, and a palm tree here and there. We've already had a description of this desert place. It had much grass and much green grass. What it meant when it said desert place, it was like an um, isolated place. It was a wilderness place. It wasn't in Bethsaida. It was outside of Bethsaida. And uh, they were many miles, actually, from Bethsaida. And plus, even if they wanted to go to town to get food from Bethsaida, the markets would be closed by 45 minutes before sundown. Furthermore, Bethsaida was not a very big village. It would not have had enough food to feed 15,000 people. So they had a problem. And, um, and, the, and they told Jesus about it as if he didn't know. The problem now arose as to how to meet the needs 
of such a vast crowd of people, the, the physical needs, food needs. And there are basically two solutions given in the remainder of this story. One is a human solution, and the other is the divine solution. The disciples, of course, offered the human solution. They came to Jesus at the end of the day, and this is pro so profound. They said, this is a desert place. Now, do you think the Lord didn't know that? He knew it was a desert place, an uh, isolated place. And they said, and now the time is far past. Okay, it's evening. You think the Lord didn't know that? Of course he knew that. They're telling the Lord all these things. But this is the, this is the, the most presumptuous thing of all. Instead of asking his advice about the problem, they give him a command. Look what they tell him to do. Uh, this is in Mark, by the way, if you want to look with me. Mark 6, 35. They say, send them away. They are giving Jesus a command about how to handle this problem. Send the, them away that they may go into the country and, you know, into the villages roundabout and buy themselves some bread to eat. That's the general attitude of humanity. How do you handle a problem? You try to get rid of it. You try to pass it on to somebody else. Let them take care of themselves. That's what society does with, with uh, unsolvable problems. Remember the demoniac of Gadara? What did society do with him? Sent him away. Go live out there in the tombs. Um, and that's what the disciples also, we haven't gotten here in our Life of Christ study, but when a, a Syrophoenician woman came to the Lord and begged him that he would cast a devil out of her daughter, you know what the, what the Lord's disciples said? Send her away. Matthew 15, 23. Remember when people were bringing their children to Jesus? Again, send them away. You don't need to be bothered with these little ones. That's man's attitude, the world's attitude, the attitude of the disciples, is to get rid of the problems that they can't solve by sending them away. If you can't get along with your spouse, what do you do? Send him away. Get rid of him. Try another one. <laughs> but Jesus sees things differently. Aren't you glad that he does? I am so glad he sees things differently. He sees the divine solution to all problems, no matter how impossible they might appear to be from man's perspective. Jesus knew the people were weak. He knew they were tired. And he knew they could not be sent away to find food on their own without uh, some of them fainting. They had to go all the way back to Capernaum to get to where their, their belongings were, where they left all their, their caravan to get some food. Many of them would have fainted. And many children would be basket cases. The mothers would be basket cases. The children would be just beyond, you know, trying to comfort. So he looked on the people with compassion, and he was always available to meet their needs, whether they were physical or spiritual. Now, he could have, you know this, with his power, he could have right then and there said, sack lunch, and everybody would have had their own sack lunch. Everybody would have had food. But he didn't do things that way. He wanted to use this problem as another means to teach his disciples. Remember now, his ministry at this point in time is primarily to train his disciples for their ministry that they would take over once he was departed from them. Even though he's in a public setting with many, many people, his focus is on those 12. He is trying to stretch their faith and to get them involved in service. God is pleased to use human instruments to accomplish his purposes and to dispense his grace on earth. You know, it is a wonderful privilege that you and I have to be co-laborers with Christ. That's what he wanted to teach this, these men, that they were going to help him distribute the bread of life to the multitudes. The bread of life was himself. He distributed it to the disciples, and they in turn distributed it to others. So Jesus turned to Philip. Philip is from that area, so it makes sense. And he asked him where they could go to buy bread. And he didn't do this because he did not know how he was going to solve this problem. It even tells us, I think it's in verse 5 um, or 6, it, it says he didn't do this because he himself didn't know what he would do. He knew already what he was going to do, how he was going to solve this problem, this seeming problem. But he asked Philip this in order to prove him or to test his faith, to stretch it. Jesus really wanted Philip to look to him for the answer rather than to human resources. It would have been great if Philip, instead of saying what he did say, said, I don't know, I don't think there's any place we can buy bread, Lord. 
This is humanly an impossible situation. But I have seen you turn water into wine. I have seen you raise the dead. I have seen you calm a storm with just the words of your mouth. So this is a piece of cake to you. This is a piece of barley cake to you. (laughs) That's what, what he should have said. But like so many of us, he was focused on the magnitude of the problem more than on the magnitude of the power of the person who stood there before him. He was occupied more with the circumstances than he was with the Christ. So Philip, unfortunately, answered the Lord. He looked at the demand instead of at the Lord. He answered him by saying, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take even a little bit. He was looking by sight, not by faith. He was looking on the size of the multitude, and he was making a calculation without Christ considered. When we have problems, don't ever calculate your answer without considering Christ. He figured that even if they had 200 denarii or penny worth, which was about equivalent to seven months of a work, uh, common worker's wages. I might have eight months in your books if I do what's wrong. It should be more like seven months. They, uh, the, a wage for one day was one penny worth. So it was about 200 days wages. I don't know where he got that number. I don't know if that's how much money they had in their treasury, the Lord and his disciples. Who, who was their treasurer? Judas. Uh, maybe they had that much in their treasury, but you know what? I doubt it because Jesus had to get a, the, the tax out of a fish's mouth so that he could pay his own tax, his and Peter's. So I don't really think they had that much. I think Philip just said, even if we had 200 denarii, we couldn't go and buy enough bread to feed everyone. There would just be too little. But it's interesting that he did pull that number out of the air or wherever it came from because in the scripture, 20 and any multiple of 20, like 20 times 10 or 20 times 100 or 20 times 1,000, is the biblical number for insufficiency. And there's a lot of passages I think I give in your book. You can look that up. 20 is the number for insufficiency. So it wasn't just used haphazardly, even though Philip might not have known it. But it really was a number that spoke of not only Philip's insufficient faith, but also the insufficiency of human resources. Now, we would have thought, perhaps by this time, that after the apostles had witnessed so many of the Lord's amazing miracles and his power, that they would have learned that he easily could meet any need. So we might sit here and criticize Philip, and Andrew and the others for their lack of faith. But first of all, what should we do? Take the beam out of our own eyes and look within ourselves. Have we not, each of us, experienced our whole Christian life, the provision and the protection of the upholding hand of the Lord every step of the way? We have. And yet, do we not worry about what lies ahead? We do. And so many times, just like Philip, we get occupied with the impossible demand that is before us rather than counting upon the God of the impossible to whom we claim we have faith and loyalty. And oftentimes, sadly, we think that money might be the answer to many of our problems. But money does not satisfy. It does not fill the empty soul. Well, while all of this was going on with the Lord and Philip, their little conversation, um, another disciple, remember Jesus said, we'll find out how much food we have in one of the accounts. So Andrew, who was a people person, Andrew saw the individual. Philip looked at the crowd. He said, oh, the crowd's too big. We can't do it. But Andrew was looking at the individuals. He was probably such a people person that he was walking among the people, shaking hands, getting to know them, Um, and in the meantime, looking for anybody who might have some food. Unfortunately, he did not look for the supply from Jesus, however. He was looking for, uh, for the supply from human resources. We could say that Philip looked to money for the answer, whereas Andrew was looking to man for the answer. Neither one of them remembered to look to the Messiah. But we do have to commend Andrew. You do like Andrew, don't you? Because he's ever the evangelist. 
He was involved in personal evangelism when he brought his brother Peter to the Lord. He was involved in child evangelism when he brought this young lad with a lunch to the Lord. And he was also involved in foreign missions (laughs) because later on when we see him, he's bringing some Greeks to the Lord. Andrew found the lad with the little lunch. And the Greek word for lad means a little boy. He was a little boy. And he had this little lunch. And Andrew brought this little boy to Jesus and said, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes. And it would have been great if Andrew had stopped right there. But he didn't. Because if he had stopped right there, he'd basically be saying, Look, Lord, this little boy has just this little bitty lunch here. But you can take it and you can use it. I know you can. I have faith in what you can do with this. But Andrew didn't stop there. He went on and he said, But what are they among so many? How soon he and Philip both forgot how Jesus had turned water into wine and how he had stilled the stormy sea and all the other things, you know, that he had done. Both of them figured their calculations without Christ. And therefore, they both saw only an impossible situation. But again, don't we do exactly the same thing? How often do we look at our our situations with unfocused vision, seeing the problem larger and clearer as blocking our way and only seeing Jesus Christ somewhere fuzzily way in the background, you know, somehow behind the problem instead of in front of the problem. We do the very same thing. I think of a a verse that I stumbled across while I was studying that's found in Psalm 78, 19, I think it is if you want to look there. But it was an evil question that was asked by the Israelites when they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. You know, Jesus had, I mean, God, Jesus God, had provided for them. Every day they had what they needed to eat. He, he sent them manna from heaven, and he even sent them water from a rock. And yet they, with, with their wicked, unbelieving hearts, they said in Psalm 78, 19, is that it? Somebody... Can can the Lord prepare us a table in the wilderness? Even after the the manna and the water, now they wanted meat to eat. So they asked that evil question, and I got to thinking about how, how he answered that question in this miracle. Can the Lord prepare a table in the middle of the wilderness? Of course he can. That's exactly what he does here in the, in the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, which, by the way, is not the same miracle as the feeding of the 4,000, which we will get to later. There are many differences. Some people think they're one and the same miracle, but they are not. The Lord also did prepare a table in the wilderness for, with the Israelites. I don't know why they were so blind to see it, because he gave them quail and water and manna, bread, manna from heaven to eat. All right, well, the stage was fully set for a miracle. Jesus was the only one who could solve the problem of hunger for these Passover hordes. There was no other solution except to send the people away to fend for themselves. All they had was a little sack lunch and um, maybe 200 denarii, but there was no market to even use the money. So the, po- the, the situation was impossible from the human perspective. Now, um, but Jesus doesn't send people away. He never sends people away who have come to him to be fed. He never fails, even if we do. So there's no way that he was going to send these people away empty. Now, it is interesting that uh, liberalism, you know, the liberals today, I'm talking about within Christendom, love to take the supernatural out of the Bible. That's their favorite little game to play. Do you know how they handle this miracle? They say that when the little boy was willing to give Jesus his lunch, that everybody else got convicted about how selfish they were. So they all took out their little lunches, and everybody got filled. Isn't that ridiculous? It's really denying the omniscience of Jesus because he looked on them and knew they were hungry. They were hungry. If they were hungry, they would have eaten, but they didn't have anything to eat. So he looked down at this little lad with his meager little lunch. Now, don't get the idea that he had six big, huge loaves of barley bread and two giant fishes. He didn't. What he had were two small sardine-type fishes, which were cooked, um, and they were used to spread as a relish on these little barley cakes that were actually flat, little round 
barley cakes. I know that's the only word I can think for. And barley was the food of the poor people. Barley, in the book of Revelation, it says that um, one measure of barley, or one measure of wheat, equals three measures of barley. And if you ever want to call somebody a nasty name, you can call them a barley cake. That's what the Midianites, I know it sounds ridiculous, <laughs> they would look at you like, but this is biblical. This is biblical name calling, even though it's still evil. The Midianites did not like Gideon. You know, the judge back in the Old Testament named Gideon? They didn't like Gideon, and so they called him an insignificant barley cake. <laughs> so teach that one to your grandchildren. Next time they call somebody stupid, say, don't say stupid. Call them an insignificant barley cake. <clears throat> All right, so this was, not a, this was just an insignificant little lunch. But doesn't the Lord Jesus delight in, in using the despised things, the little things, to confound the, the mighty? Here he used, to him, this was, this was the equivalent, this little gift that this little boy was willing to share with Jesus, to give to Jesus, not even share, to give him the whole thing, was the equivalent to the, to the uh, expensive um, spikenard perfume that was poured out on, by Mary on Jesus. It was equivalent to the widow's two mites. Two mites were nothing, but it was all she had. Same thing with this little boy. Th these were great gifts. This is what Jesus was looking for. Someone to give out of their, their, their own need, their own poverty. He didn't have much, but he was willing to give all that he had to Jesus. And that's all Jesus was looking for. He wants each and every one of us, no matter how little we have, how meager we feel are our talents, or how insignificant we think we are, or how little our education level we might think is, or how, how few brain cells we have left, <laughs> or whatever. You know, we're always putting ourselves down. He doesn't care about all those things. He just wants us to surrender what we do have, no matter how little it is, and he will take it, and from there, do great and mighty things which we can't even imagine if we're just willing to surrender what we do have to him. That's the biggest lesson of this, I think, that the Lord can take what we're willing to surrender to him no matter how little it is and do great and mighty. He can multiply it. He can multiply it beyond your greatest expectation. So Jesus told the disciples, out of time again, he told the disciples to make the people sit down and he didn't rebuke his men for their lack of faith, but rather patiently put them to another test. This was the test of obedience. He gave them a command to seat the people. Even though our faith might not be as strong as it should be, yet the Lord Jesus will be pleased with us. Even if our faith isn't what it should be, he will be pleased with us if we are still obedient to him. And they were. They, they, uh, their faith may have failed here, but their obedience did not. They managed to get about fifteen or 20,000 people to sit down in groups of 50s and 100s. Now, why would Jesus have done it like this? Why would he have made the people sit down in ranks or garden plots like that on that green grassy hill? Well, for one thing, it's because they needed, um, the disciples would need paths to walk through in order to feed the people. And um, if, the, if the people were just standing up everywhere, there'd be mass chaos because some would be shoving, children would be trying to get in, on, you know, in front of other children, and it would just be a mess. God does everything decently and in order, doesn't he? He is not the author of confusion. And I like that. Like I said earlier, you know, how, how is dinner time at your house? It is an important time, family time, that you get your family together at dinner time. Have everybody sit down and have quiet time together as a family instead of some grabbing food, running here and running there. This is biblical. This is biblical. This is what he did. You know, before he fed the people, he had them sit down. It says, be still and know that I am God. He knows that, that uh, we must sit down in order to be still, to be fed. That's what you're doing here this morning. You're being still, sitting down so that you might be fed. We must put aside the activities of the body and all the clutter of our busy minds to allow God to feed us. We must put away our, our spirit of haste to come and feast at the Lord's table. If we don't, 
we're not going to have anything to feed others if we don't have our still time every day with the Lord. Now, I've already talked about the fact that there was much grass, that it was green, and how that reminds us of uh, the Lord's this, this, uh, 23rd Psalm. He maketh us to lie down in green pastures. He restores our what? Our souls. He prepares a table before us. And how our cups runneth over. After this miracle, there were leftovers running over, 12 baskets full of leftovers. And uh, that's another lesson. Always provide, if you have people for dinner, always provide enough food. I always overdo it. I always have too much food. But leftovers are biblical. (laughs) There's another one. Jesus took the loaves and the fish and he looked up toward heaven and he gave thanks. He wanted everybody to know where this gift, this miracle was coming from, God the Father. He gave thanks to God the Father ahead of time for the miracle. He blessed the food and then he broke it as his body would be broken for us and he distributed that little meager bit of food to his disciples to begin to pass out among the multitudes. Now, where did the miracle take place? Was it in the hands of Christ or in the hands of the disciples? Was it in the hands of Christ or did something go on within those baskets? Well, we are given a hint in the Greek tenses of the verb broke and gave. The, the, The Greek verb for broke is in the aortist tense, which means that it was a one time action. He took each of those barley cakes and broke it once. He took each of those fish and broke it once. But in the giving, it's given in the continuous tense. He kept on giving. He kept on giving. The disciples would come back, and he kept kept on giving into their baskets. The miracle took place where? In his hands, not in the disciples' hands. He causes the increase. We, as his servants, make the distribution. We learn that in his hands is the increase, while we are given the joyful duty of being his hands. To distribute. We have the wonderful duty to pass on to others what the Lord in his grace has first given to us. The apostles first received the bread of life from the hands of Jesus, and then they were able to, to uh, distribute it to the multitudes. And this was going to be their ministry their entire lives, to humbly receive and then to faithfully distribute. Now, what people do with the bread is up to them, isn't it? Some of those people could have taken the bread and thrown it on the ground, ignored it totally, or given it away. What people do with the bread of life is up to them. Our duty is simply, as God's servants, to uh, to put it before them, to distribute it to them. And they were filled. Notice verse 12 says they were filled. And that's another wonder of divine grace. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know what it means to be filled? They weren't just so that their, their grumblings in their stomachs were quieted. They were filled. Have you ever eaten so much that you're filled and you feel like you're going to blow up if you take one more bite? They were filled. Big, burly, Galilean fishermen guys that could run nine miles and beat Jesus. Teenagers who eat like horses. Uh, mothers who were faint from carrying and dealing with little children all day. Every person there was filled. He promises that whosoever will come to him shall never hunger, and he that believes in him shall never thirst. Not only were they filled, but but he did exceeding abundantly above all that was asked or thought. There was enough bread and fish left over that the disciples who had been obedient to his commands each got a whole basket full of leftovers. How many disciples were there? Twelve. How many baskets of leftovers were there? Twelve. They hadn't had time to eat. They probably had not eaten before they fed the whole multitude. You know, the first shall be last. The last shall be first. The last shall be first. (laughs) But he, and don't you you think that they took each of their baskets to him and said, Lord, you eat. But I bet he, being the greatest servant of all, was the very last to eat. Now, there's a sequel to this story. This will take two minutes. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. This is Jesus flees the multitude. John 6, verse 14. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth that prophet that should come into the world. They're speaking of the prophet who was predicted to come like unto Moses. Moses was the deliverer. And now they're saying we have another Moses. 
we have that prophet who was prophesied to come and deliver us. Verse 15, when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. Hearing Jesus speak about the kingdom of heaven and watching him heal people all day long and now witnessing firsthand this fantastic miracle of creation. I wonder how long it took the people to realize a miracle was happening. I don't guess it took them too long. But watching all this thing, it, these things, it didn't take the massive crowd very long at all to decide that this was the man who they wanted as their king. They didn't want Herod Anipas. They didn't want his brother Philip. They didn't want Archelaus down in the south. They wanted Jesus. And I'm sure as they looked around at the size of their multitude, 5,000 men, they thought, we already have the beginnings of an army. We can, get, we can march with him at the head and, and overtake Herod in his palace. We can then go all the way down to Jerusalem, for it is the time of Passover, and there will be great multitudes of people in Jerusalem. We can tell them what Jesus can do. He can have a few demonstrations of his, of his powers, of, of his power, and we'll be ready to march to Rome. And they were excited. And who do you think was excited right along with them? His disciples. We know that they were in on this. They thought, finally, things are beginning to happen. Here we go. This is the beginning of the kingdom. And we know that the disciples were in on this because we're going to look next week where it says he had to constrain them to get back into the boat and go, out, go back to the other side. And you know what? On their way to the other side, they faced a storm. And he had to walk out to them. That's what we're going to see in a couple more weeks. That will be the lesson. But his disciples were in on this. But this vision was not God's vision for his son. This was not why God sent Jesus to come. He didn't send him to earth to conquer Rome or to conquer the Herods, but to conquer men's hearts. He came to establish a spiritual kingdom of righteousness. They wanted just a material, secular kingdom. Although these people were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised prophet, they were convinced about that. They were wrong about the type of Messiah that they thought he was. He was not a political deliverer or even a, a food and weapons supplier. You know, they, if they marched to Rome, they probably thought, well, we don't even have to take food with us because we can just stop anywhere and get a couple of fish and barley cakes and he can make food for all of us. We don't even need armor or weapons because he can just get us all supplied. But he wasn't that kind of a Messiah. He was a spiritual Messiah who desired to cleanse them of their sin and see them saved for his eternal kingdom. Most of these people could see the human Jesus very clearly, but that few of them had eyes to see the divine Son of God at all. They had been filled to satisfaction with bread, with physical bread, but they never even got so much as a small taste of the true bread of life. And following this miracle, he's going to give them a very important sermon, the bread of life sermon. And when he's through with that sermon, most of the people turn and walk away from him. His disciples, most of his disciples, not the 12, but the other disciples. So the Lord dismissed the whole crowd, and that again is a miracle. They wanted to take him and make him king, and somehow they still obeyed him. He sent them away, and then he forced his disciples into the boat, and everybody left the grassy green field that day filled in their stomachs, but still empty in their souls, at least most of, most of the people. But I think that there was one little boy who went skipping all the way home. I believe there was one little lad whose very wise mother had sent him off prepared that day with a little lunch. Perhaps she was a mother who had wisely prepared her little boy's heart with bread from God's word, just as she had prepared his lunch with bread. I think when that little lad burst through his parents' home, wherever he lived, that his face was glowing as he told his mother what had happened that day. He would have said something like, like some of you want to hear from your children. Mama, guess what happened? I met Jesus today. And don't you know that would have blessed her heart. And she would have, he would have said to her, And Mom, I gave him everything I had. I gave him everything you had prepared for me to give him. And guess what? He took it, and he used it to feed a whole lot of people, Mom. More people than I ever saw in my whole life. 
And on the way home, I was thinking, if Jesus could do that with my little lunch and multiply it like that, I wonder what he would do if I gave him my whole self. So you know what, Mom? I decided that I'm going to give my whole self to Jesus. As little as I am, I know that little is much where he is concerned. I cried over that yesterday, too. <laughs> I want to read a poem that will be our closing prayer, so bow with me and pray this poem in your heart. I hope you will. Lord, make me like the little lad who brought to you his bread. Help me give my all to thee that many might be fed. And make me, Lord, like Andrew, bringing folks to thee so they too will know thy grace and be from sin set free. Use me as you used your twelve to feed the mighty crowd and to know it's your supply that I might not grow proud. Teach me not to focus, Lord, on problems, but thy power, and may my calculations include thee every hour. Show me that with you, O Lord, a little can supply. Tis thee alone I know who does both bless and multiply. Make me like the little lad who brought to you two fish. Use me to feed many, Lord, for tis my heart most wish. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.